Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. A long time ago, about four years now, this wonderful reporter for the Detroit Free Press was working the weekend beat. When you work the weekends, it's a, it's a rotating shift. And usually you have to cover the craziest stories. Um, the dog walk in, in Birmingham, or they might have a cat show at Kobo. In this instance, L.L. Brazier, Lori Brazier, one of the finest crime reporters this town ever had, was sent out to Woodmere Cemetery out on Fort Street in Detroit, kind of towards southwest, um, outside of the court, like greater downtown area. and. As part of the special tour they were doing that day, a series of hearse owners, a hearse club, was going to go through the cemetery together and they would get the tour that would be specialized to their kind of <coughs> unique interests. So as part of that tour, they stopped by a lot of different people's uh, gravestones. You have like James Verner from Verner's is buried there. Uh, if I remember right, the, the Carhartts are at Woodmere, I think. The Dodge Brothers are at a different one. But the place they stopped caught my friend's attention because there's one line in the article that they stopped to see Rose Vera's, the witch of Delray, who was accused of killing as many as 12 men of carbolic acid. And that caught my friend's eye. He sent me a note and he said, that's your next book. And I thought, no, 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 no. My next book is something quirky and, and ridiculous. Maybe I was gonna write about bowling. That was an actual topic I looked at. But when I read up on Rose on the internet, which again, if you have insomnia some night, go look at the couple blog posts that are about her, they will thrill you to no end because they accuse her of all manner of witchcraft, that the nickname the Witch of Delray came from that she could transform herself into a wolf, that she was born with two sets of teeth, which I'm kind of like, well, aren't all of us born with the two sets of teeth? Technically, it's a little creepy, but it's true. Um, that she, you know, cut men into meat pies. And I was like, no, that was, I believe, Mac the Knife. Um, so people really have taken liberties with the story. And if I could not take a fact from a newspaper or a source outside of a blog post and confirm it against legal records or some other thing, it didn't end up in the book. So you'll read lots of tales outside of what I wrote. But since I couldn't verify them, and to me they weren't the truth, they didn't end up in my version of the story which I'd like to think is a little more researched than your average blogger. But I decided as part of that, when I heard about Rose and this tale of her 12 supposed murders, and I thought, that's a female serial killer. This is instantly an interesting story. I went to Woodmere, took a couple times, because Woodmere is gigantic, to find her. And when I did it, the first thing that I noticed was she's born on December 26th of 1877. And my birthday also is December 26th. And I thought, well, right there. From one Christmas baby to another, we all got terrible gifts. It's true. <laughs> so I would be sympathetic to her cause, and so I would take it up. Um, so a little bit about the case itself. And, and to give some background, and I'll, I'll go over the little inset there, because sometimes it's hard to read even on these big screens. She had the nickname of the Witch of Del Rey way before any of this stuff started to happen. 
it was a neighborhood nickname that was given to her probably sometime in the 1920s. When her husband died in 1927, she always claimed that when his income was cut off, the neighbors kind of turned against her. And because she wasn't generous or couldn't share her income, they saw her then as kind of the harbinger of bad times for that neighbor. But anything bad that happened could be attributed to Rose. So they were calling her the witch because she sort of was a hex. Uh, she was a bad luck talisman for the neighborhood. So it wasn't so much that she practiced witchcraft. I could never find any evidence of any of that in her, her story or in any accounts of the era, but that they thought she was a bad person, for lack of a better description. Now, the case that is the most infamous, because there was other accusations against her that never stuck, you know, lots of small, from small to huge. You know, she was accused of everything from, you know, shoplifting to um, murder in the 20s, but nothing ever stuck. This one that happened in 1931 of the death of one of her boarders did stick in that she was arrested, held for trial, and no surprise, sorry if you haven't read the book yet, she is held for that crime in jail, uh, a life sentence. But what got her there is a, a, just a huge tsunami of Detroit events. If all these things, in my opinion, hadn't occurred simultaneously, Rose wouldn't have been in the position she was in. And I'll add, for my own benefit, therefore the grace of God go all of us. Uh, if you get arrested, you know, God bless you, because you better have a really good attorney. Rose did not. But to give some background to the original story, the basics that you, you find out about Rose and her cases, she has owned a boarding house with her husband from probably about 1924, 1925 forward. And always just a, a circle of just different people have lived, um, probably more than likely in a basement or kind of a cellar feel. This was very common. Boarding houses were all over Detroit. When I started researching the story, my dad even remembered when his grandma had a border. You know, because he would be in family photos, that kind of thing. Uh, so it was very common across not only Metro Detroit, but all of some of lower Michigan to take in an extra person for a little bit of extra money. Rose and her husband had been doing that, and his death in 1927 kind of caused her to step it up a little bit. I think she may have taken in more boarders, let's say, but anywhere from, let's say, two to six people could have been living in her house. Now, this particular boarder is a guy named Steve Mack. He was about 155 pounds in his 60s, Hungarian immigrant, much like most of Delray. We'll talk more about Delray's Hungarian uh, tradition in a minute. But he was father to three girls, a widower, and he'd come from Hungary to the United States to make money in the auto factories. Detroit, of course, infamous for Detroit's um, Henry Ford, who had the $5 a day wage. You know, that turned the whole world on its head. So in between the immigrants coming over from Europe and other parts of the world, you had the southern migration of workers from the south of the United States coming to the north, not only for jobs, but eventually to escape Jim Crow and all the uh, anti, uh, the kind of racist laws that existed in the south. And so this all occurs around the same time that Rose is looking again to increase a little income, and she takes in these borders. This particular guy has been asked on the morning of August 23rd, 1931, 
there's some repair work that needs to be done on a, a second story window. It's kind of like a bungalow style house. And the men who work or you know live in our house all kind of do the draw straws or rock, paper, scissors. Steve Mack is the loser of the case. He's got to go fix the window. Rose is hot for this thing to get fixed. So he climbs the ladder and supposedly falls from the ladder where he's injured on the way down. The houses are very close together. We'll see some photos of that and dies of his injuries. So the suspicion becomes, once the police are on scene, they're kind of called to the location by the neighbors, or she's done it again. The witch has done it again. She's killed someone else. Because they've already been to our house multiple times for different kinds of things. You know, probably everything from a drunken tenant to uh, accusations that she had actually killed a different person in the house. So they know of her. And they do respond to the call, and they show up. He's taken to the hospital, Steve is, and two days later dies of his injuries. So now it goes from you know, maybe an assault, depending on what story you believe, to now straightforward murder. So is it first-degree murder? Or is it manslaughter? All these things have to be decided in court. But the why is kind of the interesting thing of the story. According to the lore and what's reported in the newspapers, is that Rose, for years now, has been taking out insurance policies on the men who live in her house, or the men have taken out their own insurance policies and named her the beneficiary. And when they die, she collects the money, she sells their things, and she lives it up. Now, this is the Great Depression, and we'll talk more about that as well. So anybody who's got a nickel to their name is probably not going to brag about it, but they, the neighbors more or less feel Rose has been bragging. That when these men who die in her boarding house are buried, they're done so in kind of a showy way. Now, that also follows tradition, just like having an insurance or a burial policy does follow a tradition. A burial that is somewhat um, appropriate, depending on the religion or the culture, does follow tradition, but in light of, again, all of these other circumstances, the fact that Rose is having these showy so-called funerals on someone else's dime, or that she might benefit from that, has caused a lot of negative attention. Enough so that, again, when the police are called, they come to her house. Now, the interesting thing about these, I would call them graphics in, in news parlance, is in this one, it's from a newspaper, uh, it would have ran here in Detroit and then other newspapers picked it up. But these lists ran in every story about the Witch of Del Rey. And what I found interesting about them is, you know, I tried to research any death that was associated with her. And so there's different names on this, this fatal roster, as they call it. This one says, over the last 10 years, three of our husbands, could prove that, but three of our husbands are among these 10 deaths. Now, Rose is married multiple times, but I'll explain that too. Uh, but this includes her own husband at the moment, a guy named Gabor. He dies of carbon monoxide poisoning with a friend of his. There is uh, three undetermined deaths. There's a suicide by hanging. There's two cases of alcoholism and one intestinal ailment. And these are the, the supposed um, murders that took place in her home. Now, I don't know if you, back in the day, I don't even think they used the word alleged. I think they just presumed among the 10 deaths. 
So that that we'll come back to some of those people and maybe the whys and wherefores and you know, what would have led some of these deaths to happen. Uh, but to give some context of what kind of the neighborhood looked like and what the scene of the crime was, um, the photo on the right shows the ladder that Steve was said to have climbed to repair the window. Uh, the photo on the left I love because it gives you some context of how close the houses were together. So that when he fell, he's said to have like crashed against the houses, sort of like ricocheted on his way down. And that might have caused some of the injuries he suffered as well. But you can also see they're not terrifically huge houses. If you look at the context of the height of the people, you know, you have a good substantive front porch. These are the kind of front porches that would be like a shotgun porch where you'd shoot from here and it'd go across to all the fronts of everybody's places. Uh, Rose's house, by the way, is not there anymore. The closest I can tell, it was torn down maybe in the 1980s. But there are, on this street, Medina or Medina, depending on how you pronounce it, there are examples still standing that will show you, if you ever visit, what those houses kind of look like. And they look identical to the pictures you see here. Just a, probably about a story and a half, uh, cement block, front porch, and uh, a simple siding. Nothing terribly fancy. But everything, of course, in Delray is very well kept. There's a lot of pride of ownership. And then the middle picture I adore only because these are the curious, fearful neighbors, as the caption describes them. And they're kind of this chorus that's always present in Rose's case. The neighbors are not only the ones that likely called the police on her, but they're also the ones that would have to act as her translators. She didn't speak much English. Uh, Del Rey is mostly Hungarian, and you didn't need, at, you know, in the 1930s to speak fluently to be understood by the shopkeepers who you knew back in the old country and came here with you, more or less. So these neighbors would have to speak on her behalf to her own lawyer, to the judges, to anybody involved in her case. And I'll tell you, they're the ones that gave her the Witch of Del Rey nickname. Um, some of them were her friends, and some of them probably were not. So all that plays into, once again, these kind of uh, impacts on how her case was handled. Now, Detroit in 1931 is a city of highs and lows. Well up into the 1920s, it's at its best. It's at its biggest. Uh, Detroit's population is growing by leaps and bounds, and I'll give you some numbers on that. But these, these are examples of not only how huge the city is, you know, where we've got these skyscrapers, but we've got buildings that today even stand as some of the most beautiful buildings ever created. Uh, we got the Fisher Building is completed in 1928, the Guardian Building, uh, the Ambassador Bridge is built at this time frame, as well as the tunnel, the Detroit Zoo opens for the first time. So it's really a time of growth and expansion. It's super exciting because in this time frame, this is when your auto magnets have become you know, the equivalent of billionaires to today's money. And they have money to spend. Like the Fisher Brothers, when they build the Fisher Building, have a whole complex they're going to build. And they spend $25 million just on the marble and decor of the Fisher Building. And this is $1928. Um, and so it's really a beautiful uh, up-and-coming city. Population is soaring from the turn of the century to 1930, its, it's population grows by like a thousand percent or some ridiculous number, but at the time that Rose is living there and this case is happening, it's gone to 1.5 million people. 
It's the fourth largest city in the United States. And it's because of its booming automotive industry. But to some degree, um, that booming singular industry is what causes our depression to last differently and, and start earlier. But to give some context for Delray as well, is Delray really is a unique part of Detroit and its history. And the more I learned about it, the more I grew to love it. It's located right off the Detroit River in southwest Detroit. So if anyone's familiar with Zug Island, that's kind of like one of its neighbors. Um, it is also where Fort Wayne is, uh, the 1800s uh, fort that defended us against any kind of British invasion. But what makes Delray kind of unique is this beautiful spot. I call it almost like a Gross Point-esque place where had development gone a different way, it would truly be a, a, a landmark like that Lakeshore Drive in Gross Point is. In part because at the turn of the century, in the 1890s, they positioned an exposition there. Position, exposition, I like that. Um, it's kind of the equivalent of a World's Fair, and Detroit wins it because we're a city on the rise. They put it out in Delray. And that is because, again, they've opened ground. It's, it's somewhat lightly forested, so it's very beautiful and pastoral. A lot of open space. It's on the water. So people can get there by ferry, by boat, by train, uh, by horse and carriage, whatever means they can get there. It's so popular that after its first year, it's held over, basically, for like another five years. So year after year, this exposition is taking place in Delray. You know, and, these, these structures are grand, um, almost like castle-like. You can see in that upper right-hand photo. And much like if anybody's read Devil in the White City, that they create the white city out of nothing, there's these very showy buildings, but they're made of like wood. Very simple. They're not meant to last forever. That's the, what the exposition was. So after the population of attendees starts to decline, uh, the property's made available for sale, and a company called Salve buys it. And they put in their processing plant there, so it's like a factory of sorts. And they turned Delray in around you know, the late 1800s, early part of the 1900s, into a factory town. They, they put in paved roads and streetlights and a hospital devoted just to the Delray neighborhood. They have um, all these houses grow up around it. And to the point where Delray is looking at maybe, instead of just being a village, they think about becoming a city, much like Hamtramck and Highland Park successfully do later on. It's on its way when Detroit, as it's expanding and growing and taking in every piece of land it can, annexes Delray into Detroit proper. So it goes from a village to just a neighborhood name. So Springwells uh, willingly accepts becoming part of Detroit, whereas Delray never really does. There are people from Delray that will only say that's where they're from. They almost don't even acknowledge that they're part of Detroit to this day, uh, because that's how much that identity meant to them. And Delray, in its heyday, is spectacular. It has this great business district along Jefferson that has everything from meat markets to restaurants to you know dry cleaners, Everything you need, banks, it's all there in Delray. Um, they got bars and restaurants that people save for special occasions because you go have a beautiful Hungarian dinner and the gypsies might play for you and it becomes kind of like that's where you go for your birthday. 
um, wonderful churches, great Hungarian traditions that people can take part in, like uh, they make wine on an annual basis and people come to watch that. Uh, Delray is so associated with its Hungarian uh, residents that they nickname it Hunky Town. It's, it's this like story part of Detroit and, and people really love going there. And so that's kind of the Delray that Rose moves into when she comes to the United States. Is it's, it's home away from home. It's like a mini hungry. Now the, the, the forces that though impact her story and impact Detroit so greatly include obviously the Great Depression. This is something that probably hit Detroit more like 1926, 1927, 28, even more the rest of the nation because we're so reliant on the sale of automobiles that as people's incomes start to decline or they're affected by stretching themselves too far into the stock market, what aren't they going to buy? The one big purchase outside of our homes is a car. So car sales start to drop, layoffs start to happen, people aren't recalled back to the factories, especially after the depression hits the rest of the nation. So there's this almost like extreme layoff that just never seems to end. And Detroit is as bad as anywhere in the nation in that we have soup kitchens. This is when the Capuchins first opened their soup kitchen. We, uh, one of the Fisher <coughs> facilities is turned into a, basically a homeless shelter for families that are turned out of their houses when they can't make rent. Um, lines for jobs are extreme. People are selling apples as some way to make money. Like that's one of the city of Detroit's great schemes. They hear, you know, there's people in New York City selling apples for, you know, a job. We could do that for our people. Um, and then the other factor that is so important in a lot of ways to Rose's case, but all, also to just how Detroit is, is prohibition. Michigan and Detroit is one of the first places to willingly enter into prohibition or the, the kind of outlaw of any kind of alcohol. And in part, it's because of Henry Ford and other factors. But Henry Ford doesn't want his employees drinking, so he's all for it. He's a teetotaler himself. He's, he's more than happy to have prohibition brought into the city. And the rest of us are not. Cities like Hamtramck and Detroit become basically blind pig central. There's hidden bars everywhere. There's even said to be a mausoleum in one of the cemeteries where they hid alcohol under the mausoleum. They found proof of it the other day and people are just out of control laughing because when they went in to repair the mausoleum, they found beer bottles all in the basement of this mausoleum. So the fact of the matter, and, and this little illustration shows that in parts, the Detroit River is so slim that conceivably, if you were a strong enough swimmer, you could get from Detroit to Canada. Well, you can definitely go across in a car when it's frozen solid. And in some instances, people who tell Prohibition history, my friend Mickey Lyons being one of them, she's kind of the Detroit Prohibition expert. Greg Kowalski is the Hamtramck uh, Prohibition expert. Uh, when they, they wanted to go across in the winter, they paint their cars all white so they couldn't be seen crossing. Or the ladies would go to Canada and underneath their giant skirts, they would have these curved flasks attached to their legs and they could bring alcohol back in that way, in addition to people making alcohol in their own homes. Al Capone had kind of like a branch of his uh, Chicago syndicate here in Detroit to collect this alcohol and help him spread it all over. And the, the kind of the violence that springs up around this illegal activity is what spars, uh, sparks 
um, a gang and mob and mafia renaissance. We not only have some of the best Italian mobs, because mobsters who were big in New York City moved to Detroit either to be closer to family or maybe someone knows somebody, they want to be here. So we have Chicago, you've got New York, and Detroit as far as size of the Italian mob. And obviously alcohol will come and go. But we have our own homegrown mob, uh, the Purple Gang. So there are a bunch of kids that grow up in Black Bottom area in kind of the Jewish synagogues around town and they ran together. Um, Abe Bernstein and Harry somebody, you know, like they just, the books on the Purple Gang will just spin your head how complicated and all just spread through Detroit they were from uh, the early uh, prostitution houses to gambling houses to rum running, you know, bring the alcohol in. I guess Delray was one of their big entry spots for the Purples. Um, they didn't really fight with each other because they kind of separated. Okay, you do this and I'll do that. But they fought within each other. So if the Italians needed someone bumped off, they'd ask the Purples to do it. If the Purples needed to bump someone off, they'd go, you know, and, and do it somewhere else and, and, you know, not bring the blood into Detroit. But this ultimately does filter into the general population. This kind of gang violence is read in the newspapers, is seen in their everyday lives. Um, this kind of lawlessness gets to a point, though, where even the city of Detroit is, is done. The, the, the mayor has turned a blind eye. At one point, Charles Bowles, who's mayor of Detroit, says, just let them all kill each other. That'll get rid of the gangs. Eventually, they'll, they'll wipe each other out. And the, the citizens are like, we've had enough. We, this is too much for us. And in 1930, elect a new prosecutor. He's seen here in this photo, um, and I'll show you some more photos of him in a minute, the, the kind of balding fellow, Harry Toy. He runs on a campaign of cleaning up Detroit. I won't let any crime pass me by. I'm going to prosecute every case to the fullest extent of the law. And he is elected wholeheartedly on that campaign promise. He, as a Wayne County prosecutor, he would have ultimate power over most legal cases that are going to be in Detroit's courts. And he's actually able to try some of the Italian mob and at least slow them down. So he's already showing that he's got some strength, some power. Um, they call him Headline Harry because he's in the newspaper so much. So he's a very busy man when, in 1931, this Witch Del Rey case springs up. And it's front page news from the minute the media hears about it, because who can resist a nickname like the Witch of Del Rey? And so this kind of puts Harry Toy in a conundrum. It's a big case. It's a very visible case because there's three newspapers in town covering it. And the front page headlines are bigger than the ones covering the President of the United States or anything else. And so he's got the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press, and the Detroit Times all sniffing around, wanting to know what's going to happen. So he puts a couple of his best uh, guys on the case, and he says, go get a conviction, basically. That's, that's my theory, is that he just wants this thing off his desk. He's a good guy, but he's got too much to do. Like, he actually faints in court at one point because he's just exhausted. And so these are some of the characters that we'll meet that are integral parts of Rose's story. Um, some of the biggest characters in the city's history and some of the people that do the most change-making. I mean, if you think 
Kwame Kilpatrick was the biggest political scandal? No, 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 no. These people top him by a long shot. Can you name who those people are? Oh yeah, we'll go through all of them. Okay. But the, the two that I think are the most interesting, and this is just because of me, is the judge in the lower right-hand corner, that's Edward Jeffries. So the Jeffries family is what, you know, Jeffries Freeway is named after. Not only him is one of the best judges Detroit's ever seen, but his son is mayor of Detroit in, um, in the 40s. And he's um, kind of considered the, the, mind, the brain behind urban renewal. Uh, so he's the one that kind of tears down Black Bottom and some of the other slum areas that everybody's still mad about. But that's his dad, who's one of the judges in Rose's case. He oversees her preliminary hearing. Um, the woman in the portrait there, that's Janet McDonald. She's all over books about Detroit. And she's fascinating because she's the one that pulls the domino that sends everybody to jail. When, when they all are finally caught taking bribes, and that includes Duncan McRae, who was at the time Wayne County prosecutor, the mayor of the city, a guy named Richard Reading, and the um, sheriff, they, and about 100 plus police officers, all go down for taking bribes. It's because of Janet. She's the one that does it. So I'll explain what she does um, in a minute. And then just some of the police officers that, that were overseeing her case. Um, so John Whitman is my hero of the story. You gotta have some good guys. I mean, Detroit police were very good. Maybe not very good at stopping mob violence. That's kind of its own specialty. But we really had a terrific police force. We had female police officers that we were the first in the nation to actually have females because you're gonna search someone carrying an alcohol <coughs> under her skirts, it can't be a guy. So we get female police officers. Um, they have crime labs, mobile crime labs that can go on site. They, um, so you can see them with some of these stock photos. They're showing some of their techniques, which I love. They were the first at radio dispatch. Um, it's a really a very good police force, but um, he is the detective that had a homicide that actually investigates Rose's case. And so it's just a delight to be able to follow his movements um, in the case. He got Rose herself. And the struggle with Rose, to some degree, is not a lot is known about her. Even though she's the main character of our book, this is kind of the average person gets thrust into the limelight conundrum. You know, now you scramble to find out everything you can about her. And the challenge is she's kind of an average person until the day that she's arrested for murder. What we do know about her is she's come over from Hungary uh, in part because her husband has come over. She's married when she lives in Hungary. And he comes to the United States to work for one of the car companies. She never hears from him past his arrival in Detroit, so she somehow must scrape together the money to buy her passage over, tracks him down to Detroit, and according to lore of the neighborhood, <coughs> finds him shacked up with some other woman. And so they divorce or separate or whatever, what have you, maybe the marriage in Hungary isn't valid in the United States. Never can find paperwork to that end. But she remarries a man named Gabor, who works for Salve, said to be a very good man. They have three sons, uh, Bill, who is 18 at the time of the crime, and he's implicated in the case. So he, too, is tried for first-degree murder at 18. And then two other sons, Gabor Jr., who goes by Gabriel and Gubby in later life, 
and John. Uh, Gabor is about 15-ish when the crime happens, and John's about 11 or 12. And so they're kind of the, the core of her family at this point. Because in 1927, when Gabor Sr. dies, he's repairing a car in the family garage in January. And they shut the garage door, and he dies of carbon monoxide poisoning from the car running to probably keep the garage warm. And so he and his friend die on site. Now, if, if you are a firm believer in the Rose is a serial killer, uh, she held the door shut, and that's how they die. Because, you know, she's about 120 pounds, dripping wet, 5'3"-ish. Uh, so she, yeah, she can hold the garage door closed while two men try to escape. But that's just me. Um, Bill, we know even less about, sad to say. But he supposedly is... Uh, part of the case for two reasons. One is one of the witnesses says that he says he did it, that Bill was part of the, the attack on Steve Mack, but also the police don't believe that Rose could do it by herself, so they kind of rope him into the case. And it's really hard to prove it, but through some uh, legal maneuverings, they somehow can bring him into a first-degree <coughs> trial, and he's convicted along with Rose. He doesn't really have much of a criminal past. The best I could find on him is that supposedly he was arrested once for shoplifting. But he's a teenage boy. Um, I'm sure a lot of foolishness took place that uh, Rose was trying to handle with three boys in the house. Now, Harry Toy is, uh, again, the Wayne County prosecutor. He would have been in charge of the case. And he goes on actually to become um, the Michigan Supreme Court Justice. And that's how his assistant prosecutor, that guy I mentioned named Duncan McCray, steps up to take his spot. And that's when all these other shenanigans happen. But Harry is uh, considered kind of this watchdog, a good, a good force for the city of Detroit, but unfortunately, he has too much on his plate. So he brings in this guy named Duncan McCray to actually prosecute the case. Now, Duncan is the classic Jeffrey Figer, silver-tongued, attorney that can talk you into anything and if he says it you believe it juries love him and he starts out as a civil servant you know a low-ranking kind of city clerk sees the attorneys thinks that looks good goes to law school at night gets a degree and gets a job in the prosecutor's office and from there he's ingratiated himself to everyone um, if he does cross your path in a negative way he takes you out for a drink and all is forgiven so they, he's nicknamed Drunken McRae for good reason. Um, he is actually um, so disliked, though, by the public and, and people who really know him, that when he does run for Wayne County prosecutor, there's an editorial in the Detroit Free Press that says, if you like crime, and if you want our city to go off the rails, vote for Duncan McRae in the election. And so what does Detroit do? votes him into office in the last slide. And they said, the Detroit Free Press called it. They're like, he's going to be the worst thing that ever happened to the city, and he indeed is. George Stutz is the other prosecutor, the assistant prosecutor on Rose's case. He's kind of the angel on, Dun on Duncan's shoulder, saying, don't do this, don't do this, but we know Duncan, who at the time, actually, of Rose's case, is running for judge and needs a whole lot of people to kind of get his name into the public eye never listens to the good guy. So George is, is a great character in that he's a young, young prosecutor 
when he, this case comes to him. He probably wants the experience of working on it. He's just not strong enough to stop the tides uh, that come against Rose. But he does make up for it later. He, he's really instrumental in helping her uh, achieve a second trial. And then the media. Uh, media in these trials that take off become just ridiculous uh, fodder for like CNN coverage, a 24 news channel. This is the woman that did that for Rose's case in Detroit. So Vera Brown is one of my favorites. Like I just cannot believe that she kind of got forgotten by history because she's such a larger than life character. But she had left the University of Michigan, worked her way into the Detroit news like two days after graduation. How she ended up getting a job in a newspaper in that era, she's got to be a very impressive, smooth talker. But after a year at the Detroit News, it's kind of sick of it. They keep putting her on these girly stories. She's got to like write recipes and Dear Abby type columns, and she's not having it. There's enough Nancy Browns to go around. She wants to be her own woman. So when an opening comes up at the new newspaper, the Detroit Times, she jumps ship, and that's where she's going to make her name. And one of the first cases she covers is the Rose Barrett's murder trial. And she just runs with it. It's the most colorful, over-the-top prose you'll ever read in your life. But I thank her for it, because everybody else's reporting is pretty dry. you got to love Vera Brown. She would describe Rose in, in great detail, and what she was wearing, and what the, the lawyers were wearing. And it's just great fun. Um, she was on the radio. She's infamous for her little felt hat. And she smoked like a chimney, so she always had like a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. When it was hot in the newsroom, she'd take her dress off and just write in her slip. So she'd have this hat, this cute little hat, and the cigarette, and then she's typing away and swearing at the guys. Um, she is so good of a reporter, though, that after Rose's case, and she kind of makes her, her fame to some degree, she gets to cover the 1935 Detroit Tigers that go to the World Series and win. A woman covers a World Series championship. That's how good she is. Um, she teaches herself how to, or she doesn't teach herself. She takes lessons in flying airplanes because she's covering Henry Ford and Edsel Ford when they're building airplanes at Willow Run. So she's like, if I'm going to write about Henry Ford, I better know how to fly a plane. So she does. And they, they give her her own airplane. Like she flies over Detroit in this airplane. Well, the Detroit News had one too, but Vera had to have her own. And she has a weekly column at one point as well. So she's really uh, making her bones on this case. So what actually happened on that day? So when the case goes to trial, uh, let's just put it, it's a very speedy process. She's arrested at the end of August. By the first week of October, she is on trial for her life in court and is convicted. But in, in, when Duncan McRae is presenting this to the jury, this is kind of how he approached it. His, his first kind of iteration of the case, his first witness is this guy named John Walker. He's an African-American guy. He's come up from the South, and he's rented a spot in Rose's house. Probably rents a bedroom uh, in her house. They, they describe it as half the duplex, but it was probably just a little corner there with his family. And he claims that when Rose and Bill come in that day from where Mac has been injured, they tell him, if you keep your mouth shut about what we've done, we'll give you $500 and they bribe him. Because the story that they tell him, that he tells the court, is that they, they corner Mac in the basement, they beat him to, to unconsciousness, 
carry him up the stairs to the bathroom where there's an access panel into the attic, shove him into the attic, carry him across the attic floor, and then throw him out the window. So that's why I love this little cartoon because this actually ran in one of the newspapers of, of him being you know, flailed out the window there. Um, and there's Bill and Rose doing their dirty, dirty deed. Um, so this is actually, Duncan hangs his case on this, but some of the other testimony that comes forward is uh, in a second version of the story, a guy named George Hallitz. He's a boarder that lived in Rose's house. He says that he was outside coming to visit one of the other guys that lived there, and he hears Mac and Rose arguing and sees Rose push him out the window. Another testimony that comes forward is Bessie Hill. She's a, a new neighbor to the block. She testifies that she sees Mac fall uh, out of the, off the ladder, and then Rose comes over to her house and is covered in like cobwebs and dirt from the attic and asks if she could wash her hands and face at, in Bessie's house. Because when you murder someone, you like to go to somebody else's house to wash up. Uh, so that's important detail. But one of the, the final bits of testimony that actually weighs heavily on the court, uh, on the jury, uh, a jury made up of her peers to some degree, but also a lot of people that had never served on a jury before. Like, I've actually had people contact me after the book came out and they're like, my grandmother was on that case and she described it as the most exciting thing that ever happened to her. Um, is this little girl testifies. 11-year-old Rose uh, Chevalier says she saw Mac go up the ladder and into the attic and then come out, tumbling out, like as if he was pushed. And this idea that this little girl would, would never lie, you know, what she said was probably true, also sat very heavily with the jury. And so they do indeed convict Rose. Uh, both Rose and Bill are sentenced to life in prison. Uh, Rose goes off to the Women's House of Correction, and Bill goes off to uh, the Jackson State Prison. And, and there they're going to sit for all of eternity, to be honest with you, because their own attorney, who's supposed to file an appeal, that's what happens next, right? You know, your, your attorney appeals your conviction. He's disbarred. He's like the worst attorney in the history of Detroit attorneys. And he does never goes ahead and files any appeal because he can't. He's got his own demons he's fighting, in my opinion. I've never been able to kind of prove what I think is the case that he may have been an alcoholic at some point in his life. But Rose's case is more or less forgotten until Duncan McCrae, who, when he becomes Wayne County prosecutor in 1930, no, 19, not 1930, like 1932, I think it is, immediately starts taking bribes and immediately sets up this elaborate system of payback. So if you want to run a gambling house in Detroit, that's fine. Just every week I want my payment. You want to have a house of prostitution? That's fine. Just make sure I get my share. And he so emboldens the rest of the city government that soon the mayor's doing it, the sheriff's doing it, all these police officers are helping move all this money around until <laughs> when one of the money guys decides to break up with his girlfriend unexpectedly, a woman named Janet McDonald. And Janet does not take too kindly to be broken up with. She's heartbroken. She's bereft. And so before she commits suicide, she writes a series of letters 
detailing this elaborate scheme that's happening in Detroit city government. And she mails it to all the newspapers and the FBI. And they believe her. There's enough truth to be that there that they start investigating it. Now Duncan McRae, who's on vacation when this goes down, comes racing back to Detroit and tries to halt the investigation. It's not allowed. Everybody goes around him. It takes forever, because he's a really good attorney. But eventually, they go to arrest him. And when they do, that hat is all that he left behind. So as they're kind of coming up the stairs to arrest him, he runs out the other way and down the stairs and out the door. That hat actually still sits in the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office that Duncan McRae left behind. And I actually had to see it. I couldn't believe the stories that I'd heard that it sits there. And a friend of mine was able to get me into the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office through a series of you know, favors and please, 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 I want to see the hat. That hangs outside of Kim Worthy's office. So our own Wayne County Prosecutor sees it every day when she goes to work. And it's, it hangs there as a symbol of what you don't do when you're the, the county prosecutor. That Duncan McRae lives in infamy even to today because of that Panama hat. But there's his arrest card as well. Eventually they caught him and they, they took forever to get him in, into the jail, into prison. But when they do, they send him away, you know, for he gets uh, like four and a half years, up to five years. And one of the first things he does when he's arrested and, and thrown in jail is he goes and he finds Bill Varys. He finds Rose's son, and he says to him, you've got a case here. I think there was enough mistakes made. Well, wait a minute, you made the mistakes, buddy. You know, this is always my conundrum. Like, is he doing it out of some sort of uh, redemption effort, or is he trying to get revenge on Harry Toy because they never liked each other at the end? I don't know. But what he does sets off a series of actions that will lead to Rose and Bill getting a new trial. And, and in part, it's because this woman, Gabor, Gabriel, uh, Rose's middle son, has, has kind of spent his days thinking about his mom and his brother and how is he going to help them. And he hears, I'm going to guess, somehow through the grapevine, about this attorney. There's this female attorney named Aileen B. Klutz. Now there's a name that could only be from the 1930s and 1940s. Like she should be some heroine in like a Katherine Hepburn movie. But she is known in Detroit as kind of the, the, the attorney of last resort. If you've tried everything and you are hard up and you want to get out of jail because you're truly innocent, which I know they all say, but let's say you are, Aileen Klutz would take on anybody's case and she'd give it her best effort. And somehow they hear about her and the Veras family goes to her and says, our mother and brother are in jail. Will you take a look at the case? And she agrees to do it. And she's a tough as nails lady. I mean, like, there is nobody tougher than Aileen. To the point where, in 1925, when her husband is smacking her around a little bit for not being home enough, because she's off helping with political campaigns, and she's a Red Cross volunteer, and anything she can do to help other people she's doing, he gets a little irate that dinner's not at the table, so he hits her a few too many times. So she divorces him in 1925 goes to law school, that's a picture of her law school graduation, in her 40s, gets a law degree, and then takes on any case, especially those involving women and children. Those are her specialties.
So the fact that Rose is a mother and has children is very meaningful to Aileen. Um, she actually is helping take care of her nieces and nephews. Uh, her brother dies unexpectedly, and she's helping raise this litter of kids. Um, so she's got a big heart, and she wants to help. So she takes on the case. Um, she, she runs amok with it. She goes through so many legal wranglings. I have to keep you here for another week to tell you all about them. That's why it's wonderful the library has the book. I've got copies of the book. Uh, wherever you want to read it or, or get more into the how she does it. But she re-interviews every witness. She badgers the Detroit police. She harasses the attorney's office. Like, they can't find the ladder. Because who knows where the ladder is in the evidence rooms. Um, so she just does whatever it takes. So she first gets bills out of prison through a series of small miracles. Then goes back and gets Rose a second trial. And in that second trial, she actually works so hard to get Rose's trust that Rose herself testifies. In the first trial, Rose would not, or at least says she was advised not to. And so the jury never heard her story, never heard her voice, never heard anything. That Aileen could talk uh, Rose into doing it, I think really speaks to her kindness and her, her ability to kind of uh, work with people. And so indeed, after 14 years in prison, uh, Rose Vera is set free. And actually, she goes on to try to become a US citizen. I've never been able to verify that she did. Uh, the State Department probably has a file on me somewhere, like why is this strange woman calling, asking about this citizenship case from the 1940s, 1950s. But I just thought that would be fascinating. And a, a brilliant end to the story is here's a person that the United States put in jail. Um, and she goes on to want to be a US citizen. But. Uh, where is Del Rey today, and, and what kind of happened to all our cast of characters and Rose, but uh, Del Rey is a much different place. I kind of painted this beautiful picture for you, and now I've got to take it all away. Um, in the big urban renewal portion of Detroit's history, like the 40s and 50s, they basically made Del Rey the industrial area. All the factories went there. Uh, when they needed to expand I-75, they cut it right through Del Rey. They put the wastewater treatment there. Um, anything that they could dump, they dumped in Delray. Can you now? I'm sorry. Can you point it out on the? Oh yeah. So this is kind of that same place where they would have had the exposition, and there's Fort Wayne that's part of Delray. So downtown is up in the upper left, so you kind of see the Renaissance Center and stuff like that. So this whole portion is Delray down in this triangular area. And the reason this photo is here is because that new bridge that they're talking about, the Gordie Howe International Bridge, that's going to compete with the Ambassador Bridge, Maddie Maroon's little bridge, um, is going smack dab in Delray. So what they've done is they've basically torn down probably a third of Delray, which it needed, to be honest. Um, it really didn't grow beyond the 1930s, kind of after Rose's trial, uh, Delray kind of goes idle, they don't build a whole lot of new houses, uh, they, they have a lot more factories, and then factories open and close, and they have to be cleaned, and no one wants to clean industrial sites. Um, so that's where the new bridge is going in, and then Zug Island is there with U.S. Steel. If, if you really want to smell terrible smells, I highly recommend driving into Delray, because between the wastewater treatment plant, Zug Island, and a few other sites, it really is a, a very different place. Um, but there is the beauty 
you do still have Riverfront. Eventually, the Riverfront Conservancy in Detroit is bringing parks into Delray. Um, so they will have that. The bridge development is going to bring some economic gain to the people who live in Delray. A lot of them have been moved out by the city because of this new development, so that's actually going to help because they were living in some substandard housing. Um, because of the pollution in the area from Zug Island and some other things, a lot of the kids have asthma and the adults are sick. Uh, some get, say the cancer is higher in that area uh, because of some of this uh, industrial sites. So it's good that they've been moved. Those who stay, though, will probably stay forever. They are never going to leave Delray. There's a lot of love and loyalty. Um, that upper left-hand picture is of their community center in Delray, very active. Uh, you see families and kids all the time. They do a lot of events there. Uh, for the Day of the Dead, they're going to have a friend us probably again. When I was visiting, they were making a friend us with the kids. They have a computer lab for the kids. Um, that mural shows the history of Delray over from probably when it was founded in the 1800s all the way to today. So it's, it's really beautiful. It's a great asset for that community. And again, Fort Wayne is going to be redeveloped, and that's going to bring a lot of potential interest to the area. So between the bridge, which is one of those bittersweet things, and Fort Wayne and the Riverfront Conservancy building parks all along the riverfront, eventually Delray is going to be beautiful again. Um, it might be 50 to 100 years in the future, but it's going to it's going to get there. It's going to get there. I, I promise. Um, but this one, I just saw this the other day, so I had to throw this into the presentation. Uh, someone posted this on Facebook on one of Delray's uh, websites, uh, pages on Facebook. That, I think, is Jefferson. I have to still identify the, the road. That's Delray's like, kind of downtown, and that's the same place today. That's how significant the devastation, so to speak, of tearing things down and uh, not investing. You know, all those decades of not investing in Detroit and, and the flight, everybody's flight, not just white flight, everybody, um, has led to, to somewhat a ghost town. But I, I still think Delray is great. I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to preserve some of this that people can see it was a beautiful place and can be still. But I ask, you know, how should we remember Rose in part uh, as a wife and mother? She was an average person. Um, she was a grandmother. There she is upon her release from prison with her grandson. Her son John uh, had some children, and so that's one of her grandchildren with her. Uh, she, when she was, when she passed away, her son uh, Gabriel, again, kind of the, the man of the house at that point, uh, because of what happened with Bill, uh, moves Gabor's tombstone to be with roses. So they're together uh, in Woodmere Cemetery, even though he dies in 1927 and she dies in 1960, they're side by side again, which I thought was a beautiful ending. Because she is, she's a wife and mother to many. Um, but then you get kind of some of the things that I rail against and get a little offended by. Uh, bars like this one in Detroit, named to drink the Witch of Delray. And I've actually had people, which I do not fault them, I don't like the bars doing this, I admit that. But I've had many people come to the presentation who grew up in Delray, who will tell me that their parents used Rose or the witch as the boogeyman. So if you don't come home when those street lights turn on, the witch will get you. And I had a woman just last week when I did a presentation at another library say that the reason she came 
was her parents had threatened her with the witch so much. She didn't believe that was based on a real person. She just assumed it was like this, this villain, this boogeyman, this, this like specter. And she couldn't believe there was an actual story behind this thing she would heard of her whole life. So there is an actual story. She was a real person. She was not a witch. I don't think she could transform to a werewolf. I don't think she ate anybody. So I leave you with the idea that maybe we can all defend those from this point forward and, and speak on what they have. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.